This podcast assumes that you have a general knowledge of the Tate-LaBianca murders. Sharon Tate-Polanski, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Stephen Parent were murdered on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles on August 9, 1969. Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were slain in their Los Feliz residence the following night. Charles Manson, Charles Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Quenwinkle, and Leslie Van Houten were convicted of those murders. Did you ever read a book that changed your life? I did. This book has affected the direction of my life for almost 50 years. The story of Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders has fascinated millions of people for decades. And most people who are interested in Manson and those murders have read the book Helter Skelter by Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. Helter Skelter is the best-selling true crime book of all time, having sold well over 7 million copies worldwide since it was first published in 1974. Subtitled The True Story of the Manson Murders, Helter Skelter has also been a primary source of most media and public perception of Charles Manson and the events that occurred in Southern California in the summer of 1969. That perception is of a sociopathic ex-con who took advantage of the spirit of the late 1960s to brainwash a group of young, middle-class people into committing a series of brutal murders in the furtherance of his vision of a race war called Helter Skelter. They were monstrous crimes done for a monstrous reason at the direction of a monstrous man. But is the true story of the Manson murders really true? Were those murders really committed in order to start a race war? Was Charles Manson really able to brainwash impressionable young people so that they would commit mass murder for him? Or is there a more reasonable explanation for those murders? Because Helter Skelter was written by the prosecutor who successfully convicted Manson and his co-defendants, it is considered by many people to be the Bible of the Tate-LaBianca murders. But after nearly half a century, it's time to change that. In the tradition of Access Manson and Goodbye Helter Skelter, this is the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast. Hi, I'm George Stimson. And this is the third episode of the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast. In this installment, we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding the shooting of Bernard Crow. It is important to realize that the Tate-LaBianca murders were not isolated, although conjoined incidents, but rather were part of a longer chain of criminal occurrences that began over a month earlier when Charles Tex Watson cheated Bernard Crow in a marijuana deal. While most accounts of the Tate-LaBianca murders give little, if any, attention to this incident, it is, in fact, the criminal catalyst that triggered the series of events that ended up in the houses on Cielo and Waverly Drives. But before we get to the story, a little background information. In the summer of 1969, there was a group of people living at the Spawn Movie Ranch in the Chatsworth neighborhood of Los Angeles in the Northwest San Fernando Valley. Some of the people in the group had been together for over two years, some for only a few weeks. 
The oldest member of the group was a 34-year-old man named Charles Manson. Manson was an ex-convict of some stature, having spent the majority of his life in institutions. Others residing at the ranch included Charles Watson, also known as Tex, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Linda Kasabian, all of whom were around 20 years old. It would be impossible to convey here the spirit of community that many members of this group were experiencing, but later actions demonstrate the depth of this feeling beyond any doubt. If you want to gain some insight into what life in the group was like until about the time of our story, read Will You Die For Me by Charles Watson up to the end of Chapter 9, Child of Satan, Child of God by Susan Atkins up to about page 110, My Life with Charles Manson by Paul Watkins up to Chapter 7 or so, and the entire book Reflection by Lynette Fromey. Some of the people who lived at Spahn's Ranch are involved in the story unfolding before us. The outline of that story is that on July 1, 1969, Charles Watson ripped off a man named Bernard Crow for $2,400 during a phony marijuana transaction. And to put this in perspective, realize that $2,400 in 1969 is the same as almost $18,000 today. That's worth keeping in mind as we try to determine various persons' actions and reactions. When Bernard Crowe became aware that he had been swindled, he participated in a telephone call made to Spahn's movie ranch trying to locate Charles Watson. Instead, he connected with Charles Manson. During this phone call, threats were made against the people at Spahn's ranch that were credible enough that Manson agreed to go to Crowe's location in Hollywood to try to straighten the matter out. Once there, he ended up shooting Crowe once in the abdomen with a 22 caliber revolver, and that ended the dispute. But what led up to that moment? Who put what actions into motion that ended up with Charles Manson shooting Bernard Crow? In looking into this incident, we will look at the following sources. Will You Die For Me by Charles Watson, Child of Satan, Child of God, and The Myth of Helter Skelter by Susan Atkins, The Testimony of Bernard Crow During the Penalty Phase of Charles Manson's Murder Trial, The Recollection of T.J. Wallerman, and The Recollection of Charles Manson. After looking at these sources critically, we will try to determine the most plausible scenario of what happened. And when we can't discern something outright from testimony or other evidence, we will apply a standard of common sense and reasonableness to try to determine the truth. We'll begin by looking at what Charles Tex Watson has to say about it. In his book, Will You Die For Me?, Watson admits that the idea to burn Crow was his own plan. Responding to an alleged prompting by Manson to come up with some money, he says, I thought a while and came up with an idea. Later, after explaining the mechanics of his duping of Crow and Crow's resultant anger, he says, we'd already agreed that Charlie would handle this end of it. And then Manson goes down to Hollywood and handles it by shooting Crow. Is this version of the story reasonable? I think that one big part of it certainly is not, and that is the idea that it was agreed that Charlie would handle this end of it. Do you think that 34-year-old seasoned ex-con Charles Manson would agree to a scheme hatched by Charles Watson, 10 years his junior, wherein Watson would steal almost $18,000 from a person unknown to Manson 
and that when that person complained, Manson would simply handle it. Short, lean, ambivalent, and nonviolent, Manson almost certainly would not have agreed to such an arrangement, and Watson's claim that he did flies in the face of common sense and reasonableness. And there is another indication that the Crowburn was Watson's brainchild alone. Not to get too far ahead, but a month or so after the events we're discussing here occurred, Manson asked Watson to take care of something and brought up the killing of Bernard Crow, saying how he'd taken care of that for me when it was really my mess. Wouldn't Watson challenge that reminder if it wasn't true? But he doesn't challenge it. And he doesn't challenge it because he knows it's legitimate. The Crow affair was his mess, and Charles Manson had, unfortunately, had to take care of it. Susan Atkins gives her take on the Crow incident in both of her books. In Child of Satan, Child of God, she mentions it very briefly, the main point of interest of which is her gut reaction that Charles Watson would readily swindle people. But in her second book, The Myth of Helter Skelter, Atkins goes totally off the rails with her underlying assertion that the whole impetus behind everything that happened in the summer of 1969 was Charles Manson's insatiable lust for drugs. Also, according to Atkins, the reason Manson shot Crow in the first place was simply because post-burn, he, Crow, knew where Manson lived, and Manson felt that he had to kill Crow before he could tell his supposed Black Panther brothers who would presumably be coming after him. This idea is coupled with the completely cockamamie claim that once Manson shot and thought he had killed Crow, everybody else at Spawn's ranch had something on him, and to keep them from turning him in for murder, he manipulated them into committing further murders so that he would have something on them and thus assure their silence. This is a scenario similar to one that has been offered up recently by Bobby Beausoleil. But when you think about it, and I hope you do, briefly, this claim is so ridiculous that I'm not even going to highlight the pages. Common sense and reasonableness? Not here. Atkins' version of events is nonsensical and unreasonable. And, interestingly, it demonstrates the same type of unrealistic and illogical thinking that was a large component of the copycat motive, as we shall see later. The most detailed account of the events of that night comes from the courtroom testimony of Bernard Crow during the penalty phase of the trial of Manson and his co-defendants. Bernard Crow was officially a trumpet-playing jazz musician, but he also had connections in the illegal drug trade. His personality was such that he garnered the nickname Lots of Papa. Let him explain. Now I know you by the name of Lots of Papa. Where did that name come from? How'd you get a moniker like that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like everyone uh, that I meet seems that uh, I seem to be a daddy to him more or less. Because uh -huh. I'm always uh, trying to get some sort of advice, I guess, you know. Uh, but I don't practice what I preach. <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you weigh? You look like you weigh about 230, 240. Is that the, maybe where it came from? You're lots of papa? Yes, about 293. More that much? Yes. Uh, it was just that little uh, friends of mine that uh, named me that lots of papa. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, I think they'd have to be a friend to get away with it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There are gems in the testimony transcripts, starting before Crow even begins testifying, when Bulliosi says of him, Crow, we just interviewed. 
I did speak to Kroos twice several months ago, but one time he wouldn't even talk to me. And the second time, I mean, he wasn't antagonistic. I mean, he just didn't want to give me any information. I like him already. Crow's testimony began on Thursday, January 28, 1971. Then, still before Crow gets to the stand, Charles Manson again raised his objection to not being allowed to defend himself, an objection that led to him insulting the judge, threatening the district attorney, punching his court-assigned attorney, Irving Kinnerick, and finally being forcibly removed from the courtroom. Crow's testimony then starts off with a major mistake by Bugliosi, when he misstates the date of the occurrence by one month, placing it at August 1st instead of July 1st. This misstatement not only made it into the court record several times, but it also was repeated in newspaper accounts of the day's proceedings. Beginning, Crow recalls being in a car in front of the Franklin Garden Apartments adjacent to the Magic Castle on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood with his friends Steve, Dell, Jim, and Rosina Croner and Charles Tex Watson. Watson and Croner were in a sort of girlfriend-boyfriend type relationship and had just been introduced to Crow by Dell. It was about 11 p.m. Crow said he gave his friend Dell $2,400 and then, with Crow driving, the group headed for El Monte, about 25 miles to the east. Once at El Monte, Watson was given the money and went into an apartment building where he was supposed to get 25 kilos of marijuana. Crow was distrustful, so as soon as Watson entered the building, he left the car and went into the same entrance to see where he went. There was no sign of him. And as an aside, I was thinking about the amount of pot that they were supposed to pick up. 25 kilos is what Watson was supposed to be returning to the car with. That's a lot. Garbage bags full? Suitcases? Here's what 20 kilos looked like and a kilo is over two pounds, so 25 kilos would weigh over 55 pounds. That's not an impossible amount to handle, I guess, but it would be a bulky situation to be dealing with on a sidewalk in front of an apartment building. Crow returned to the car, and Watson never came back out of the building. If that sounds a bit callous, that someone would leave his girlfriend with people he just ripped off, I'd venture that Charles Watson is not a fellow who appreciates or cares much about the consequences of his actions. Here is a guy whose parental dedication in his books refers to the seven brutal murders he committed as my past foolishness. Watson's parents would later arrange to be interred with rose bushes planted as to block their names on their tombstones. So great was their grief and shame over their son's foolishness. According to Crow, the El Monte group waited for an hour and a half or two hours before heading back to Hollywood, arriving at about one o'clock. Here, in the transcript, questioning Crow about the time, Bugliosi again gets the date wrong by a month. Crow was testifying about returning to the Franklin Avenue apartment when Manson spoke up from the holding cell. Upset that his court-forced attorney, Irving Kinnerick, was constantly interrupting Crow's testimony with objections. He yelled, let him go ahead, Irving, and tell the truth. A few minutes later, he added, will you be quiet, man? You are cutting my throat. Shut up. Back at Franklin Avenue, Rosina called Spahn's ranch and asked for Charlie. 
Instead of getting Charlie Watson, she got connected with Charlie Manson and spoke with him. Crow also spoke briefly with Manson. Crow recalled that Rosina Croner represented him as being angry enough to go to Spahn's ranch and kill everybody there, but that when he then spoke briefly with Manson, he made no threats himself. Although Crow denied making threats against Spahn's ranch, he admitted hearing Rosina Croner make them and that he even admitted hearing Rosina use the word kill. Crow also alleged that he wasn't particularly unhappy. He said he wasn't dishappy about apparently being scammed out of $2,400, again, almost $18,000 in today's money. That all strikes me as odd, because if Crow was not making threats and was, in fact, not that upset about being swindled, why would he sit back while Rosina Croner made such threats on his behalf? And indeed, if no threatening thoughts had been expressed by Crow in the apartment, why was Croner saying that they had? A possible explanation of Crow's recollection of Croner making unauthorized threats might be that, in fact, he did make the threats, but in his testimony wanted to distance himself from any action on his own part that might have provoked Manson to come after him with a gun. In any case, it doesn't matter, because Crow admits that the threats were made, and whichever person made them would have no bearing on Manson's reaction to them. He felt that his friends and Spahn's ranch were seriously threatened. Dent Crow said he left to pick up his friend Steve, which is puzzling since earlier in his testimony he said that Steve was in the car when they went to El Monte. In any case, he said that he returned to the apartment at 1.30 or 2 and that now Charles Manson and T.J. Wallerman were in the apartment with Crow, Rosina, Steve, and Dell. Jim, who was in the car during the El Monte drive, is now apparently gone. In the apartment, Manson and Crow had a discussion that lasted for 10 or 15 minutes before Manson pulled a gun out of his rear waistband and pointed it at Crow. Crow advanced on Manson, who pulled the trigger several times before shooting Crow once in the lower left abdomen. Crow fell to the floor and played possum. I've been told that uh, Charlie Manson shot you. Is that true? Could be. Well, let's not kid each other around now. It's either true or it isn't true. Uh, did he shoot you? And if so, when and where? Uh, yes, he shot me, yes. Well, when did this take place? August the 1st, 1969, on Franklin Boulevard, next to the uh, Magic Castle apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an apartment house? Yes, in an apartment. Well, now, uh, why? Uh, I refuse to answer the grounds for me. Well, is there some reason why you'd rather not answer yeah, that? Uh, answer well, let me ask it this way. Was it a, a personal dispute of some kind, or what? Yes, sir. Personal dispute. Well, was anyone else involved? Yes. Well, who was that? Uh, Charlie Watson. You mean Tex Watson? Yes, Tex Watson. Well, uh, were you having a dispute with uh, Tex and, and Charlie interfered, or how did it happen? I don't mean to push you on this, but uh, since you have admitted that he shot you, I'd like to know why. Uh, 
Well, you were you were having a disagreement with uh, Tex or with Charlie, and and uh, out of this grew the shooting. Am I our awareness is through fear? Yeah, one or the other. Fearness to where? Fear to awareness or awareness to fear, something like that effect. Now, Charlie Manson said that. Yes, he said that, and he walked out. And he walked out without his shirt. Yeah, he walked out, and uh, he took the shirt of my friend. I see. With him. What kind of gun did he shoot you with? Um, I'm looking at it. It's just, uh, just a revolver. A revolver? Yeah. Uh, well, without going into any further detail except for caliber, what, what caliber was it? I will not comment on that. While on the floor, Crow heard Manson ask Steve for his shirt, which Steve gave to him. Manson also kissed Dell's foot. Then Manson and T.J. Wallman left. Crow was clear that Manson did not appear to be under the influence of any substance during the encounter. From the time Crow got in the car with Tex Watson until the time that Charles Manson shot him, it was three hours. Three hours that changed the world. There are some puzzling aspects to Crow's testimony. People come and go. Sometimes it's not clear whether the marijuana was to be picked up in El Monte or if they were just going to connect with other people and pick it up somewhere else. Crow often conveniently doesn't remember things that it seems he ought to know, like the personal details, last names and whereabouts, for example, of his good friends. One person who was apparently not present, according to Crow, was Brian Lukashevsky, who, according to some reports, was in the apartment when Crow was shot. Steve is Steve Scorpy. Dell is probably the court reporter's transcribing of Crow's pronunciation of Dale, as one of the persons identified as being there was named Dale Fimple. Jim, we don't know who he is. Typically, Crow didn't remember Jim's last name or how to get in touch with him. I think that Bernard Crow's testimony is mostly true. There is almost nothing about it that's illogical or unbelievable. The only place I see a problem is his contention that he was not particularly upset about the burn and that Rosina Croner made all of the threats against Spahn's ranch and not he. It doesn't make sense to me that a person unconcerned about a situation would sit by and allow another person to misrepresent his reaction to another individual to include making death threats. What did Charles Manson think of Bernard Crow's testimony? We can get some idea with his remark to lawyer Irving Kinnerick. Let him go ahead, Irving, and tell the truth. It seems that he had no problem with it. And what did Bernard Crow think of Charles Manson? At the end of this interview, a reporter asked him that question, and he had some difficulty in answering. Well, if you had this bullet removed, would you turn it over to the police authorities to compare with the weapon that uh, Charlie Manson has been accused of using? I don't have comment at this time. Can you tell me how long you knew Manson and Tex Watson? Uh, not this, no comment. Okay, now without perhaps Thank you.
Uh, so I say that 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 uh, the same night I met him. Same night. Oh, I see. The right same night. Mm-hmm. Now, were you introduced to them uh, from a by a third party or? Yes, they were. Uh-huh. Now, without going into it, I suppose there was some kind of a business deal going on, and as happens, there are disputes in business and that sort of thing. I don't have time to understand. Okay. What is your uh, feeling about uh, Charlie Manson at this time? Well, my feeling for him is uh, I believe that I feel that he's uh, I think that uh, It looks to me like Crow's encounter with Manson blew his mind. But all things considered, Bernard Crow, in my opinion, was a stand-up guy. That leaves us with two more witnesses to the situation, T.J. Walliman and Charles Manson. Both tell essentially the same story, that Crow himself called the ranch, and that they then went to Hollywood, and the shooting only occurred after Manson did everything he could to talk away out of a threatening situation. Here is T.J. Walliman on Geraldo Rivera's Manson Family Reunion show. And T.J. was with Charlie when he blew open the chest with a 22 caliber gun of Bernard Crow. So, so you have seen him do you, violence. You, Bill, you no, sat there and listened to the reasons Bill, for that. You know and if you were in the same position... Wait, T.J., you admit you saw Charlie thing. shoot a man in the chest. Sure I did. I also seen everything else that happened. The yeah, guy right. called up and says he's going to cut this girl's head off. And come in, because uh, Texas Wasn't this a drug money. deal that went bad? Tex yeah. Watson's he said, Tex stole the money, deal. and then Tex comes back with this money after, and, and leaves his fiance there to get her head cut off, and says, I'm going camping. And we didn't know that until the phone call came. They asked How far away was the guy when Charlie pulled the trigger? You want to hear it or not? Yeah, right. yeah okay. Yeah. We went there because there was a screaming, crying girl there that said they were going to kill her, this girl. And we heard it on the phone, because there was two phones. She asked for Charlie. Tex's name was Charlie. So I got the other Charlie because I didn't know him as Charlie. I knew him as Tex. When we got there, they had her tied up on the bed, and we got her out of there. And the only reason anybody got shot after Charlie got down on his knees and put the gun in his hand and handed it to the guy, he says, if you got to take a life, take mine. The guy laughed and says, it has to be the girl. So then Charlie shot him? That's after uh, he... I know, I know, but then he yeah. shot him. Yeah, it was empty rounds. Yeah. Until, 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 did he shoot him, Bill, or did he not shoot him? Sure, he shot him once in the chest. Oh, oh so I'm sorry. I didn't know it was only once. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey, if I knew what? it was only once, I would have just had a whole different idea about it. <laughs> Aren't Geraldo and his people despicable? Finally, here are two tellings of Charles Manson's version of events. And interestingly... Manson adds another dimension to Watson's motivation for the burn to get money back that he had previously been cheated out of by Rosina Croner. He said, uh, this woman took my money. And he sees women right like my cigarette. And he's saying, yes, ma'am, open the door for you. In other words, he's a matriarch. I'm a patriarch. He sees the way I'm doing it. He wants to do what I'm doing. So he said, he's going to go get his money back. So he went to go get his money back. 
he went and he burnt the broad for five grand. We beat her for five grand. Some black guy called me and said, I'm Gangster Dan over here, man. You cook my money. I said, look, uh, Gangster Man, I, you know, I don't, you know, I ever, all you, all you white bubbles sort of together, woo -woo, I'm coming up there, I'm going to burn everybody up and take that ranch. I said, no, you're not, not around me, you're not. You talk that shit to them little girls, when you come to me, boy, you're going to have to, you know, because, like, I'll take your hat home to you, you dig? So we go through some changes, and I told Tex, go down there and face that man. Don't drag your shit to my door, man. He said, I can't. He'll kill me. He'll kill me. I said, well, if you're crazy, or, I mean, if you're scared, run home to mother, you dig? So he couldn't do it. So I had to go down there, and I ended up shooting the guy. He comes up to me and says, well, I, this guy beat me for my money. What should I do? I said, whatever you feel is right. Should I go get it back? I said, if you're big enough, go get it back. If not, sit down and forget it. He said, what would you do? I said, what is it? He said, $5,000. I said, well, it might be big enough to go get it. If you're big enough, go get it, go get it. So he went down and beat some broad for the money. The broad had beat him for his money. He just got his faith back, went back and beat the broad for her money. Then he comes to me and he runs and hides. They call me and say, where's my money, son? I said, man, I, you know, I got that. I go check, check that to my door, man. Go down there and face it. Oh, they'll kill me, they'll kill me. And he ran. Left me to face his responsibilities. You dig? So I take a gun, I have to go down and I have to get nasty with people, Dick. I have to put it in line. I have to say, look, man, I don't know nothing about no money. We'll, we'll burn that ranch down and kill everybody else. No, not my friends, you won't. You dig? I said, I'll, you know, we went through a lot of changes, so I ended up shooting that dude. You dig? You kill him? No. Wallerman and Manson both claimed that they went to the apartment in Hollywood because Crow was threatening Rosina Croner and the people at the ranch and that Manson shot Crow only as a last resort and as Crow was advancing on him. This latter claim corroborated by Crow's own testimony. So, after looking at all of these versions of events, there are aspects of Watson's, Atkins, and to a lesser extent, Crow's stories that don't make sense or are unreasonable. On the other hand, there is nothing in the accounts told by T.J. Wallerman and Charles Manson that is illogical, unreasonable, or unbelievable. Charles Manson got involved in the deal by accident and quickly had to come up with a decision about what to do about a problem not of his own making that arose after midnight on a hot summer night. Manson's claim that he was reacting to threats made over the phone is corroborated by the testimony of Bernard Crow himself. There is nothing to corroborate either Watson's or Atkins' version of the events. Therefore, it would be reasonable to accept that Charles Watson set up the pot burn on his own initiative that Charles Manson got involved in the affair by accident and that he settled the ensuing matter by shooting Bernard Crow and believing that he was dead. Charles Manson thought he had killed a man because of and for Charles Watson. And for that, Charles Watson owed him. This has been the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast the podcast dedicated to the truth about the Tate-LaBianca murders, Charles Manson, and more. The views expressed on this program are solely those of the individual speakers, and they do not necessarily represent the thoughts, ideas, or opinions of any other persons, either living or dead. Visit our companion website at www.goodbyehelterskelter.com. There you can find more information about this podcast. Also, Check out the Goodbye Helter Skelter Facebook page for information on upcoming programs. And let us know what you think by way of contact at goodbyehelterskelter.com.
we will address any comments, questions, or concerns on future installments of the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast.